Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to HPO Podcast. I am uh, joined here with a return guest, and I actually, uh, Dr. Hussey, I forgot to check and see which number you were last time when we had you on. It would have been a while back, I'm pretty sure. I can quick find it and let our listeners know, so if they want to you know, check out our, our, our original interview with you and go back and do some some background on that. But you have some some new happenings coming up, a new book, and uh, it'll be good to kind of have you come back on the show and, and chat a little bit about yourself. But do you want to start off by just letting our listeners kind of remember or know like kind of who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, I'm a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner. Um, I don't really practice, you know, I guess what would be traditional functional medicine, but, uh, you know, I have a degree in that. Um, so I mainly do like neuromusculoskeletal type treatment in my clinic, but I also focus on, you know, nutrition and metabolic health, uh, in, in, uh, in my clinic and then with also with clients. Um, and, uh, my kind of personal health journey is that, uh, at a very young age, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions and ultimately ended up with type one diabetes. Um, and, uh, so that, uh, has kind of predisposed me to, uh, heart disease. As I found out, you know, as a kid growing up with type one, everybody told me that, you know, I was two to four times increased risk of that. And so I've spent a lot of time kind of figuring out what heart disease was, you know, as I grew up, went through college and then, you know, chiropractic school and, and my master's and everything, I was just trying to figure out what exactly it was, what caused it and came to find out that, you know, what I guess conventionally is thought of as heart disease is not necessarily what, uh, what, what causes it. Um, or, or what it is and, and the heart's not really necessarily what we think it is and all this information. So I decided to put it all down in a book. Uh, and that's my, my latest book that's come out is, is understanding the heart, uh, uncommon insights into our most commonly diseased organ. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought you, I found your book really interesting because it was a, it's a topic that I kind of loosely followed, I guess, like I'm aware of the heart obviously, but it, so, you know, at the end of the day, like 
you know, there's, there's tons of people who've done, you know, much deeper dives into have a much greater understanding than I do. And it's always fun to kind of hear, hear the different, like, like happenings and workings just around it in general and recognizing just like, you know, what, what different things are impacting it. And I think a lot of times from my, like just layman's exploration of heart and heart issues, it seems like the path at least maybe I'm following the wrong channels, but like the, <laughs> the path, the path is uh, almost always leads to like diet and lifestyle. It seems like to me, like diet lifestyle and some sort of, and medication too, I guess you can kind of weave in there as potentially like a lifestyle choice or part of your nutrition or your, your dietary plan or your regimen, whatever you want to call it. But when you really get into it, you start to realize like there are, there are so many different like things that are impacting your heart and how your heart functions. Like you mentioned, just being a type one diabetic automatically puts you at a higher risk factor. And there's really nothing you did or could have done to prevent that. So you have these like kind of uncontrollable risk factors, like gender, your family history, your age, um, even your race to a degree uh, that, that can kind of push you one way or the other, and you did nothing but just acquire those without any choice of your own. And then there's ones that have been identified as just risk factors that are more or less controllable, like smoking, high blood pressure, um, obesity, like physical inactivity and stress and things like that. And um, stress is a weird, a weird one. Maybe we can talk about that a bit too, where it's like, I kind of understand why they would call that like a controllable scenario. But at the other hand, it's like, I mean, anyone who's experienced high levels of stress, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily controllable. We get kind of thrust into these situations that are going to drive stress, no matter we like it or not. And there's only so much you can do to maybe mitigate that in the moment. Uh, but yeah, the one that's always the most shocking to me is just like the, the diet and lifestyle alone is like, maybe can account for like a what is it like a 14 to 20% reduction in like LDL cholesterol levels, which is an interesting one to me because it seems like that one always gets labeled as like the thing that you want to watch the closest is make sure your cholesterol is in check or one of the risk factors they pay the most attention to. But when you remove the lifestyle component of which would be like the exercise stuff unrelated to what you're eating, then it's even less. It's like, I think if I remember right, like in the seven to 10 or seven to 11% range or something like that. So there's only so much you could even do given, given nutrition and things like that, uh, to really, to really move the needle. Am I kind of like heading in the right direction with the way I'm thinking about some of this or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, my goal in writing this book was not necessarily cause I'm a chiropractor. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not a cardiac researcher. This is just a topic that's affected me personally and that I'm interested in. And so. I didn't write this book to say, oh, cardiologists are wrong, cardiac researchers are wrong. I wrote it to like broaden the discussion on heart disease because it has been very focused on, um, you know, particularly cholesterol and, and LDL. Uh, and heart disease is, is about way more than that. And and I would argue that LDL is one of the, the smaller things you want to look at. There's way other things that um, that are more important uh, from my perspective on, on assessing risk for for heart disease. Um, and so, yeah, that was the, the main purpose of the book, I feel like is to open up the discussion to kind of understand the heart, which is why it's called understanding the heart, like what the heart is, why it's there, because that, it's not really the reasons that we think, but then also what causes heart disease. Um, and what can we do? Um, you know, how can we change, you know, our habits and things to affect our risk? And yeah, it, it oftentimes does boil down to 
least what we're told in the mainstream is, you know, diet and lifestyle. And those are just very broad terms. I mean, diet's kind of specific, but lifestyle is just a very broad term. Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when I think of lifestyle, I think about, you know, the environment you're putting your body in. Um, is that is that an environment that's going to create health um, or is it going to create disease or, you know, specifically heart disease? And so, you know, there's um, there was never really any sound research that, that suggests, in my opinion, that that uh, cholesterol or uh, LDL specifically is causative in, in heart disease. Um, there's some associational research that shows that it, it uh, there's an association between higher rates of heart disease and LDL or cholesterol, but those are just associational studies that can't really prove much of anything. Um, all I can show is that those things are related in, in some way, and we just don't know which way. Um, but then there's also associational research that shows that, you know, cholesterol is, uh, higher cholesterol can um, give people, you know, longer lifespans, uh, less chronic disease, you know, less heart disease, less cancer, higher cognitive abilities, less infection as they age. Um, so clearly it's, 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 uh, it's a convoluted conversation. And unfortunately, it has dominated the conversation about heart disease. And I just want to take us away from that into assessing what I think are bigger um, uh, or I guess more important assessments uh, that we could use to assess our risk for that. Um, and, and that leads us into, you know, it's not just diet and lifestyle. It's very specific um, diet and then very uh, lots of different aspects of a lifestyle that would create heart health. And it's not just looking at this myopic view of LDL on a lipid panel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think like if, from, from what I look at, it seems like, I mean, if you go in and you have like sky high cholesterol or LDL levels, it may be like a situation where, okay, now this is something that we should maybe take a second look at or take a closer look at, but it should be, in my opinion, maybe the, the thing that kind of like spurs that further investigation versus maybe like, oh, you're, you're doing all right. But then I think like you maybe dispelled that thought of mine in your book a little bit too, where, uh, you know, you, you just, you mentioned like, we don't always know for sure because there's folks who go, go in and have very, very good lipid profiles and still end up having, uh, situations where they have a, uh, a cardiac event or a heart attack. Yeah. Or stroke or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's one study I talked about in the book, particularly where they, they looked at, they took like, um, it was about 60% of the total admissions for heart attacks uh, from about 2006 to 2011 in the United States. Um, so it's a big number. And they just measured their cholesterol um, on admission or within 24 hours of admission. Uh, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but a, a very large number of them, like half or more, had normal or optimal cholesterol at the time of their admission to the hospital with a heart attack. So um, it doesn't really suggests that that number is, I guess, super important. You know, it could be anything. It could be normal, abnormal, and it's kind of irrelevant to whether or not someone's going to have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, kind of a follow-up question along those lines too, because you probably have a unique perspective being, uh, you know, someone with type 1 diabetics where, or diabetes where if you go into the, a doctor visit, you know, they, they, they know that about you and they know that that's a risk factor. So does that kind of create maybe a larger degree of exploration exploration for you as the individual there because it's like maybe a warning sign that someone like myself wouldn't have 
going in. So they're only looking at like a smaller slice of the potential pie of potential causes for someone like me, whereas for someone like yourself, there's just a heightened reason to be more vigilant about checking on things. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, so as a kid, you know, as I learn in these things that I'm more predisposed to these, these, uh, these things like heart disease and stuff like that. And I'd ask why, you know, I'd ask my doctors why. And most of the time I got the answer of, um, you know, higher blood sugars can cause to, uh, can cause, um, damaging or glycation of molecules, uh, that shouldn't be, you know, damaged by glucose because glucose is just higher in the blood, no matter how well controlled, uh, I can be. Um, and so, and that leads to damage of things like arteries, um, or, or, um, yeah, like arteries in the heart and things like that. And so it's that, it's that excess sugar in the blood, um, that causes the damage to the, the, um, like the red blood cells and then the arteries that predisposes me to heart disease. Whereas the average, you know, you know, metabolically healthy person, um, is not going to have that, that increased risk. Um, so it's all about like, uh, damage, like, uh, oxidative stress, inflammation, that kind of stuff, which, you know, happens in, you know, people without type one as well. Um, it's just that I have this, you know, you know, higher blood sugars than the average person that is going to predispose me to that. So, you know, with, with understanding that, you know, I can, I can take that information and do things to help mitigate, um, you know, the, the, um, the excess damage or inflammation that I may have from those higher blood sugars, uh, as even as, I mean, obviously the first thing to do is control the diabetes as, as well as I can, you know, um, and, and that's going to be the number one thing, but yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of times though, that it, it's, it's a little bit the opposite of what you said, as far as like I go in and everybody's just worried about my blood sugars, mm-hmm. you know, and they're worried about that one thing and I, I got to control that. And in reality, I should be looking at the whole picture. Um, but it's just such a, such a distraction that, that I'm type one and you got to worry about that. And yes, we should, or I should. Um, but it's not always about that. Um, you know, and so it's, but it's definitely difficult because it's difficult to assess someone like me for, you know, quote unquote metabolic health. Cause a fasting insulin is not going to look the same as, you know, a fasting insulin on, on, a, on someone who's not type one diabetic. Um, so so yeah, and, and like my my A1C is, is always you know a little higher. It's, it's great. It's great for a type one diabetic, um, but it's it's always a little higher than the normal person. So um, we have to take that with a with a grain of salt because sometimes that A1C, which is the you know average blood sugar assessment over like a three month time period, um, it is not like the most reliable number um, because if someone's living a healthy life and they have healthy red blood cells, they can live longer than three months, and that can make the A1C look higher than it is, um, and, and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated. And so that's why I've kind of resorted to taking a step back and, and, you know, taking all these numbers and testing into account, but also taking a step back and looking at, you know, studying, you know, humans evolutionarily and where we came from and what kind of environment we were in and trying to recreate that because it turns out that environment is the is the quote unquote lifestyle that you know we should be living that helps create health but you know um in my opinion especially heart health yeah i think that when you when we look at it from like an evolutionary lens or just like everything from like develop i guess maybe even a better way to say is like a developmental lens because now we find ourselves in a situation we're living in an environment that is like completely foreign to what we would have had any access to a couple hundred years ago and i think like at first glance 
that type of argument looks like super intriguing because it's like, oh yeah, we do have a lot more heart issues, incidents of cancer and things like that nowadays. And then, but I feel like when I see that mentioned, the, the kind of counter is always, yeah, but there's also other things to consider like, uh, you know, what is the actual intent of human longevity by like nature standards versus what we've defined as, oh, you should live to be into your 80s or whatever the average happens to be at the time uh, versus like, you know, nature, so to speak, like intention of, uh, you know, maybe old enough to, to carry on your genes and things like that. But then after that, maybe there's a little bit less use for you um, purely from a nature standpoint. And that's kind of an intriguing one to me too, where it's like, have we essentially as humans somewhat outlived our usefulness? And that's why we're dealing with some of these issues nowadays, or is there something else going on there that's kind of had it driving us in one direction or the other? Yeah, I think that, so this is an interesting argument for me too. Um, and I, and I, I get that side of things and I, and I, um, I understand that, but I also think that, you know, in studying the heart, uh, which is this organ that we, you know, associate with, you know, emotion. That's why we say, I love you with all my heart and all this. I gave it all my heart. You know, we don't say I gave it all my spleen or something like that. <laughs> um, but we say that because it's this emotional organ and those emotions um, have developed from human contact and human uh, social networks and things. We're a very social species. And so I do think that, you know, Yes, evolution, you know, may have, have set us up for, you know, passing on our genes. And after that, there's no real um, use for us, so to speak. But I think that one of the advantages of humans is our social capacity. And that means that there is a very big use for elders um, in the purveying of wisdom, in the care of children so that younger people can go and hunt while the children are cared for. Um, I do think that there there evolved a bigger role for people past the age of of reproduction, um, you know, and so uh, so I, I get those arguments, but I think that it's a little bit different in humans uh, and other I guess social uh, more social animals, you know, in, in nature, but um, we're we're definitely a different animal. Um, we and obviously you know we're we're very far removed from nature because. We've evolved these special characteristics, um, and I think our, our social nature is one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, too, when you start to look at some of that and you start teasing out, like, extreme versions of death that would lower the age expectancy as well, where, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, let's say the age expectancy was 30 years earlier than what it is today, but, you know, we're also at, you kind of bubble-wrapped ourselves to a degree to be able to avoid some of the catastrophic things of, like, sudden death that you hadn't, you know, not these like long-term chronic type of situations either. And when you look at just like kind of the folks from the past that made it past some of those hurdles of just like, you know, childbirth being a big one. And then, you know, all the way into the point where they're like maybe no longer out there actively hunting or de defending or whatever it is, their role would be in like a tribe. And they're at that point where they're kind of in that elderly space. I mean, you do see some longevity, with, with folks who can kind of get past some of those big, those big early hurdles in life. And I think that's the interesting look because their lifestyle does map more or less what we see kind of in like the historic lifestyle, but they also kind of have managed to navigate the, the immediate harms. And if they're outliving the current average life, age or life expectancy, then I think you have a little bit more of a compelling case. Yeah. And, and the other aspect of this is that, you know, 
in, 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 I guess, modern society and Western society today, we have, you know, we have people with these, you know, uh, chronic diseases in reproductive age, you know, so it's, it's not necessarily mm. that we're living longer than reproductive age and getting chronic diseases later in life. Like people are showing up with, with diabetes in their twenties, you know, like type two diabetes, obviously. And so, um, so yeah, there's that aspect too. Like, I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think that's normal, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no, that's, that's the, that's a, the big one is type two diabetes, I think, because like, I mean, if you just look at the history of it, it's like, it used to be adult onset type two diabetes and I, they have essentially had to more or less rebrand it because it's like, it's a, it's available to our youth now, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and that's obviously something that is more environmentally, um, driven, I would, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And, and I could argue that, you know, all disease or all, uh, dysfunction is, is environmentally driven or most of it, I'd say, you know, the vast majority of it, there's, there's obviously some genetic diseases, you know, that people are born with, you know, um, but, uh, most of the time when we're looking at chronic, um, disease, uh, in this, in, in Westernized societies, it's that, you know, the, the, the famous saying that, you know, that the genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. So even if, even if a disease runs in your family, it's usually because families tend to eat and do the same things, live the same, same lifestyles and things like that, that, that get those genes to be triggered to to um, express themselves in a disease state, you know, disease way. And that's kind of the, the epigenetics theory. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it too, that it was kind of a little bit of a light bulb in my own mind when I was thinking about that, just like this, you know, it, when you first look at that stuff where it's like, oh yeah, heart disease runs in my family. And then you start thinking like you said, well, what recipes and what lifestyle habits run in your family as well? <laughs> and if, if those are closely related, then you know, yeah, maybe it is less about just what you were gifted from your parents uh, as, uh, you know, as I guess, uncontrollable versus what were you gifted by your parents that is controllable, but you decided just to follow suit or, or do it what they showed you. And when you think of just humans in general, look at any topic. And a lot of times it's like, well, what are they exposed to? What are the, like their belief system, their worldview is oftentimes shaped by their surroundings and what they've been exposed to. And I think like, that's probably very similar with their, with the eating habits and lifestyle habits, I would imagine too. Definitely. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. One of the most fascinating things I found out about um, the heart is, you know, is it's this major connection to our emotional state and, you know, the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve. And, and, uh, and one interesting thing is that the, there's, um, uh, there's so many different connections from the vagus nerve, from the heart to the brain, but most of them are um, communicating from the heart to the brain. Uh, so, you know, we're interpreting our world and, and our emotional state kind of through our heart and the way our heart is feeling is communicating that state to the brain. Uh, and the brain is then acting accordingly, you know, based on, you know, the information it got. Is this a safe or threatening environment? Um, and then and, and we react accordingly to either survive or, you know, just chill. So really fascinating. Uh, highly innervated um, by the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system affects them more. So we say we have gut feelings about things uh, as well. So, so it's very interesting. Yeah. And then kind of along those lines, I, I'd love to jump into kind of a topic you talked about a bit in your book and one that I'm interested in is stress, because I think like when people hear stress, 
they automatically kind of, I imagine in most cases start to kind of angle towards like a negative, a negative like association. And I get why, I mean, you hear phrases like, you know, stress kills, stress is the real, the real culprit here. That's the one that drives things. And yeah, as an endurance athlete, I have like maybe a little bit of a different relationship with stress than, than the average person who's kind of just listening to those phrases or memes that are floating around about it, where it's like stress can be good because I need to elicit physical stress in order to get stronger and improve. And if I'm building up for a big race, I want to kind of do that at small doses throughout the course of my training plan until I get to the point where I feel like I'm strong and durable enough to complete whatever my goal is. But chronic stress or elevated stress on a regular basis that is um, more than you're able to tolerate is is very dangerous and, and usually not sustainable. So what role have you found with like stress and is this something we should be paying maybe even more attention to? Yeah, I think that yeah, we should definitely be paying more attention to stress, how to measure it, how to manage it, uh, and the effects on our body than than LDL for sure. Um, uh, and I, I'm the more and more I find, the more and more I think that this is what's driving um, heart disease. Um, and and so I I kind of define well I think that health uh, is our is defined as our ability to adapt to different situations. Uh, and that could be dietary situations, which is why you want to preserve metabolic flexibility. Um, but in the case of our autonomic nervous system and our stress response, uh, we want to preserve uh, adaptability. So like in your case, uh, you run really far, right? And and you've trained your body to adapt to that. And, and you've gotten to the point where you can run really far and it's not as stressful as it would be for someone who's not trained themselves to do that. Um, so your, your ability to adapt to that is really well honed. Whereas if we, if we got some, you know, let's say 80 year old, um, off the couch and who hasn't really trained and we asked them, we told them to go sprint around the track, you know, a quarter of a mile, they probably couldn't do it. And it may even kill them if we, if they were forced to do it because they've lost the ability to adapt, um, to that stress. And so this can get, um, this can get really out of balance in our, you know, in our modern day society, this, um, this lack of ability to adapt to a stress. And it can start with infancy because when a baby's born, its autonomic nervous system, its stress response, um, is, uh, is, is not fully developed, just like many things in a newborn. And it relies on, you know, signals from the parents. You know, that's why we look at babies with soft faces and we make soft noises to train the baby what is safe. So they get that, that baseline of what safe is. Um, because that baseline is, is going to dictate whether or not they have a stress response or not based on the environment they encounter later in life. And so you can imagine a child that's been through childhood traumas and things they learn, they have a very skewed um, baseline of what stress is. And so they're more prone, those people are more prone to have a stress response when it's not really necessary. Um, and, and it's really interesting because we humans are probably the only species that can think their way into a stress response. Um, you know, we have this, this foresight, which has given us, you know, incredible ingenuity and, and, and taken us really far because we can think into the future and think into the past and stuff. But however, um, that, that can also be a, um, a negative because we can overthink things and we can see something happen to somebody else and then think it's going to happen to us and fear that it's going to happen and all this stuff. And so all these things that we've kind of, um, we've changed our environment in our modern day society to be, have all these unnatural stressors and that combined with our, you know, our higher level thinking and, and foresight and things, um, can lead to an imbalanced stress response or a 
we kind of get stuck in a in a stress response or a, a low grade stress response all the time and that's a problem because you can imagine you know that stress response is reserved for you know interpreting your environment it's an unsafe environment let's get out it's a it's a threatening environment let's get out of here and if you thought if your body was getting signals that that was happening all the time then you wouldn't be thinking about sleeping or digesting or procreating or detoxification or anything like that um and and so people with you know these stuck in these stress responses tend to have like insomnia and sexual dysfunction and gi issues and all kinds of things can go wrong because they can't get out of that that stress state response um and that's and that's like a that's an example of like a um a, a failure to adapt you know they cannot adapt to different situations their body is programmed to get into that stress response and stay there um and so there's many different environments we should adapt to whether it's an exercise environment a diet environment a stress environment and the more able we are to adapt to those environments the healthier we'll be and uh, i guess the the better our outlook is for longevity yeah it's really interesting i think when you think of when i think of stress it's like you have like obviously physical stress that you're essentially inflicting in yourself intentionally in most cases or you know just that mental or emotional stress that can be somewhat driven from outside sources or just the way you kind of think about things. And, you know, one thing that kind of crossed my mind when you were describing that too, is like, do, do we know if there's any sorts of like association between intelligence and the amount of stress? Because I would imagine like, if you're like smarter than average, you're probably aware of more potentially dangerous things or more potentially like, you know, things that would be, could become a problem versus like a little bit more of a, like, kind of an ignorant or naive thought process of just not know if you don't, what you don't know, can't hurt you kind of a mindset. Is there anything that we know about that with uh, just like your, your knowledge base? Cause I'm thinking like nowadays people have such access to information. You could even be below average intelligence, have a lot of access to information that may or may not be healthy for your psyche. And does that, do we have any information on like how that kind of influences things? Um, I, I haven't looked, you know, on if there's like any, you know, you know, research on on that specific thing or associational research done on that but that that does uh that is really interesting to me because um you know you know if you're i don't know if smarter people are tend probably tend more to uh overthink things you know or we're playing out all the possibilities we have this information uh we go look for more information uh we we try and uh tease things out and the that very process could be more stressful um, then like you're saying, just kind of being ignorant and just kind of moving on with your life. But I also think that, um, one, one big issue, um, or one, I guess, imbalance that's created by our modern world and, uh, it doesn't really fit well with our stress response is that we have this technology that keeps us, um, plugged into pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, we can, we can hear about what's going on in Asia and Europe and, and it can be a really stressful thing, even if it's not um doesn't really locally affect us you know we can have an emotional stress response to it and you know i'm not saying that we should ignore what's happening in the world or whatever but i'm just saying that we have to realize that um our um our capacity to deal with all the stress in the world is not there you know studies have shown that um that humans are designed to have about um uh, or they can maintain about 100 to 150 you know close personal relationships um, and these days people have probably like thousands of superficial relationships through like social media and stuff. Um, and, and the, the personal, the close personal ones aren't that cultivated as much. 
um, and, and we tend to relate to people through through technology, kind of like we're doing right here. Um, and then we're also well connected to like the news and what's happening all over the world. And and we're really um, best fit to deal with, you know, small local communities of people and what's going on in that small local community. And we try and bring everything in and that can be a huge um, uh, driver in an imbalanced stress response. Yeah, it's all really interesting when you think about it. And it is, is there anything unique about like a cardiac event or like a heart attack or a stroke that they can pinpoint to like, oh, you had a real stressful situation and maybe that wasn't obviously the whole picture, but that actually caused your, your, your scenario. Yeah. So actually in, in the book, um, you know, obviously heart attacks happen, you know, because there's a blockage, um, or an acute clot forms, things like that. Um, but there are, you know, a certain percentage of heart attacks that, that occur with no blockage whatsoever. And, uh, in the book, uh, in one, in one of the chapters, I kind of, I detail and, and outline what I think happens in, uh, in those situations. And it, it basically, I mean, there's, there's other imbalances I think that have to be in place, like not being metabolically flexible, um, and having high amounts of inflammation, oxidative stress. But then the thing that kind of triggers the whole situation is, is a imbalanced stress response. Um, and a surge of adrenaline during that stress response kind of triggers this whole cascade of events that leads to tissue death in the heart with no lack of blood flow, no clot or anything like that. Um, and, and it's just, it's interesting because there's studies that show that, um, like people that were in the hospital and they had a heart attack when they were in the hospital, they, they measured, um, like the heart rate variability of these people and the heart rate variability is like the best measure of balance in our autonomic nervous system that I know of. So they're measuring that in these people and they see that before these people had a heart attack, that the heart rate variability was dropping significantly. And then about the hour before the heart attack, it just plummets. Uh, and then slowly starts to recover if if they survive the heart attack slowly starts to recover afterwards. So clearly some imbalance in the stress response was happening prior to because you can imagine if someone starts to have a heart attack, they're going to have a stress response, right? Mm -hmm. But this was happening prior to the heart attack happening. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show.
Do you, do you know, are they looking at potential applications to preempt that sort of a situation where like, I know with these wearables now you can kind of access a lot of that data in the lot or live, like, is it like acute enough where you could see like, this is a very abnormal situation that's beginning to occur. You should, you know, preempt your stroke or heart attack by calling 911 an hour or two early. Um, I haven't seen anything that's, that's in that in that development stage or whatever, but I do know that there are devices because there's studies where they've ins inserted devices that um, that artificially stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the rest and digest opposite of sympathetic stress response. Um, and so I, I, I can see that being a, a useful intervention where someone's wearing a heart rate variability monitor and it starts to plummet and they they um, they have a device that could do that. Um, the ones that they used in the studies that I know of were implanted, so obviously that wouldn't be a realistic thing. But if they developed something that would stimulate the parasympathetic, um, like artificially stimulate the vagus nerve, um, that could be potentially life-saving in some of these situations. Um, but there are also things you can do to stimulate the vagus nerve. I don't know that effectively. Like if you got to the point where you're about to have a heart attack, if you could do these things and it would it would mitigate it. I don't know about that, but like... You know, just being in contact with nature and, and, and things like that it can stimulate parasympathetic, you know, loving relationships, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other, the other avenue I wanted to head down with that one was just kind of some, a unique one to like my own uh, interest with endurance sport. And I think one thing that's kind of popped up in the world of endurance since I started getting into running was this weird like phenomenon where you'd have someone have like a heart attack during a marathon or something like that. And if you're not paying attention to just like the stress response, both physically and emotionally, you'd maybe like completely miss as to why that would potentially happen. Uh, but what have you discovered or looked into or learned about like the relationship between someone who you would think is checking all the right boxes, but then find themselves having a heart attack or a stroke in the middle of a race that is otherwise something that they're doing to prevent something like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the book, and, and I'm, I'm sure you read the chapter on exercise, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I, you know, like long distance, like cardiovascular type, you know, endurance exercise is not my favorite form of exercise. And I think that I would want more research. Like there's the faster study where they're looking at endurance exercises and, and exercisers and uh, like ketogenic or, or higher fat diets. Um, and I want to see more of that because I don't know that the concerns that I have would be relevant if that was the case for these people. Um, and I, and I talk about in the book that there are, you know, instances and it's, it's pretty rare, you know, but it does happen often enough to note it, um, where people, you know, go and run a marathon and, and they have a, a heart attack and, and die in, in the middle of the race. And I think that can be as a result of the answers that I talk about in the book that lead to those heart attacks without, without blockages, um, and, uh, and that is, you know, not being metabolically flexible in the first place. Uh, the heart seems to prefer ketones and fatty acids for fuel. Um, and I think that if it's forced to burn more glucose than it wants to, then bad things can happen. The start of this, this situation can happen. I think that, um, you know, uh, if someone is already in an inflamed state from, say, uh, poor diet, even if they're really fit, but they're eating a poor diet, um, or diet that's causing inflammation or, or a certain food that's causing inflammation that, that, um, you know, the, the increased inflammation and oxidative stress that comes with the endurance exercise, which some people can handle, some people can't, could contribute to, um, you know, damage and improper signaling of the autonomic nervous system to the heart. 
and then um and then obviously i mean any exercise is a is a stress on the body it, it increases the sympathetic it has a stress response you know and and that's good you're training your body to be prepared for you know more stress responses or, or worse ones so that you can handle those down the road but um but if you're if if it's too much you know then your body could go into this stress response and have this cascade of events that i like i said i describe in the book that can happen um that can cause heart attacks or, or clots to form like for strokes and things um, uh, without without a blockage or with a blockage. Um, and I do think that in someone who's not maybe not doing the right things um, and they go do these endurance races, that that could be a recipe for for uh, you know, a bad event or something to happen. Um, and I I talk about uh, um, the, the the main character, Micah True in, in Born to Run um, mm -hmm. and how you know they found him in the desert and um it, it sounds like he died, died with some kind of cardiomyopathy and i don't know that his running was what did it um but i know that he kind of socially isolated himself somewhat um in the desert and i know that he you know he did these long runs and that he it seemed like they talked in the book that he was fueling himself on on carbohydrates um on this kind of like sort of corn uh, i think they call it panole or something mm -hmm. and so that's you know, if I was to be an endurance athlete, I don't know that I'd choose that fuel source um, or that social isolation, um, because I do think those are things that can that can predispose us to those things. And I have no proof that you know his habits are what caused him to die, but it's just it's interesting um, to look at that kind of stuff. And I think that we should take that stuff into account. I'm more concerned about people who, you know, like the the couch to marathoners. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm definitely more concerned about that. And I and I and I think that. You know, I'm all for people exercising, and getting out there and, and trying to get healthier, but I think that it needs to be done in a, in a smart way. And I don't think that, I don't think that people have to run marathons to be healthy, you know, um, and I, and I want to discourage that, um, unless that's something that gives you, you know, um, some kind of, you know, psychological benefit or something like that. Like we definitely don't have to run that much, um, to be healthy. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's just kind of, uh, what I, what I found, um, based on uh, uh, all my research. Yeah, it is really interesting because I think you said a few things in there that just kind of like uh, popped up on my radar as just like a combination of ingredients that would lead to a scenario like this, where I think like in the modern running era, we do have a lot more folks who are like kind of getting into the sport in a little bit more of the novice category versus like if even if you just look at just like finishing times of that of marathons nowadays versus when they the first running boom i mean it's like an hour to two slower so you know there's nothing nothing against running a slow marathon but you you have to imagine a portion of that is just due to people showing up unprepared or at least least pre less prepared than they were before and i think that maybe is partly driven by just a lot of examples of what people are able to do even without like optimal preparation. Whereas when marathons kind of first started getting popular, there was such a like holy grail around the, I mean, they used to think women couldn't physically complete a marathon, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but I mean, it, it puts the, it puts the fear mechanism there where like, you know, folks are probably going to take it seriously if they're going to do it. Because if you're told, yeah, if you don't do this right, you could kill yourself. Then you're going to be a lot more thoughtful than if they say, oh yeah, everyone does this. You could just do it, just sign up and get it done. Kind of a mentality. So you have that ingredient right there of what kind of we talked about before with uh, the elderly person going out and doing like quarter mile repeats on the track. And that could, that could, uh, could end them if they're not, 
ready for it versus someone who's young, fit and going out and doing that. And it's actually an advantage to their health and well-being. And then on top of that, these marathon events, sometimes when they're like, they're built up to be a festival and you have these weird scenarios where you're just throwing a lot of abnormalities at yourself that are not even remotely close to your normal daily life where you know, you're, you're preempting the race itself by carbo loading or eating an exorbitant amount of fuel as a way to kind of like prepare your body for the fuel demands of the day of, and then the day of there's all this excitement and adrenaline and, mm. you know, probably lack of sleep and anxiety, emotions, just going into the event itself. It's almost impossible to replicate that in your training. And then on course, you know, the, the message is, you know, make sure you're having your jelly or sports drink every you know, 30 minutes or every, you know, 20 minutes or something like that. So now that's like, people are trying to do all these right things when in reality, maybe one of them would be enough. And then it ends up kind of creating this, this, this uh, very unique situation that is just conducive to like extreme amounts of stress and anxiety that are thought of as kind of good experiences. And they can be, but they can oftentimes also kind of lead you into a really really bad situation where you're just probably more susceptible for these sort of things. Yeah. And I think even, even like people, you know, who have either promised themselves or told others that hey, I'm going to do this because I told myself I'm going to, and like just the fear of failure in that moment, you know, just keeps you going and it may not be the best thing for you. And, and I guess my, my message is, is that, you know, if, if you want to get healthy, that's amazing. But I, I would go slow with your goals. You know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say January one, make a new year's resolution to run a marathon by June. Um, if you've never done that before ever, you know, I, I just don't think that that's necessary for health and it may not even be healthy. Um, you mm -hmm. know, if you're someone like you, that's clearly adapted your body to that situation and you've got your nutrition mastered and everything that's like, yeah, you know, that, that makes sense. That's something you enjoy. But I think that, um, sometimes we get the wrong message and we think that if, uh, or maybe we're, we're among other others who were like, you know, telling you that, Hey, you gotta, you gotta keep up with us and you gotta, you know, be part of the group. Don't drop out that kind of thing. And that's not needed to, to achieve health. You know, um, if that's your long-term goal, awesome. Make sure your body's ready for it when you, when you go for that goal. Yeah, it is interesting when you think about it, because this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before too, where we have all this access to each other and information that it can almost be dangerous where like, you know, someone can easily look up my training, and find out exactly what I'm doing and try to replicate it as closely as they can. But what they don't always have access to is, you know, well, what, what did those first 10 years look like from the first time you did an endurance event to when you finally got to the point where you're training at the volume and intensity that I am now. And, you know, if you get someone who's like, well, I've been running for half a year, I'm just going to go and parrot this person's plan who's been doing it for 10 years. You find yourself skipping some of those steps that you described, I think, and, yeah. and you can get yourself into a little trouble, but it, it's just, it's a weird combination because like, if I get asked to go on a podcast, they don't necessarily want to hear about the 20 mile week I ran as a sophomore in high school <laughs> versus the 150 mile week I did to prepare for a hundred mile race that, you know, right. that was, you know, essentially like, uh, a product of a decade plus of kind of micro stressing my way up to that over the course of time. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, a funny thing to say, but it's just like, it's where we do one of those situations where at least for the sake of our heart, I think we want to, you know, don't try this at home kind of thing. Let's yeah. go to the professionals. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like the other thing I'll, you, you'll see like just 
different age demographics coming even to ultra marathons now too, where when I started, it was kind of like this, this like interesting thing where, you know, you get into ultra marathons once you've kind of aged out of the traditional endurance events where a lot of the competitive uh, men and women in like the hundred mile distance were like well into their thirties, if not forties, it wasn't odd at all to see someone in their you know forties winning a hundred mile. And part of that was, you know, like a lot of the 20 year olds and early 30 year olds were still trying to maximize their marathon time or their 10 K time or something like that. So, you know, as the sport has grown and people have gone to like a little more of uh, like, I want to get into ultra marathons specifically. I don't care about five Ks, 10 Ks, half marathons, marathons. It, it is kind of ripe for a situation where people get out ahead of or get ahead of themselves and they don't necessarily check those boxes that are, uh, going to be conducive to kind of developing to what it would take to sustainably be able to train and race longer races, like what I'm doing right now. Right. Yeah. And I just think there's unnecessary risk if, if that's, if the game plan's not well thought out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, if I'll get messaged once in a while from someone who's in high school and wants to run an ultra marathon. And it's like, I usually take the mindset of like, nothing I'm going to say is going to discourage this person necessarily. If I tell them like, like, don't do it, it's dangerous. So, cause like eventually they're going to ask me for like, tell, tell me why it's dangerous. And I'm not going to have a great answer for them other than what I suspect. And then if they want to do it, they're going to do it anyway. So like my message is always just like, you know, I think there's just a ton of value in running successful ultra marathons by you know, starting early and taking advantage of some of the resources you have available to you in your youth, where there's, you know, essentially free events and teams you can join and clubs you can get involved with that really show you the ins and outs and how to properly train for an endurance event in general. And to kind of bypass that is sort of giving yourself a, doing yourself a bit of a disservice, I think, because like, it's, it's, it's an experience that I oftentimes reflect back on when I'm preparing for an ultra marathon. If I didn't have that experience, I don't know that I would be, you know, as successful as I have been. So I always try to just let people know that like, you know, there's, you don't have to be young to run successful ultra marathons. So like you may as well, like get, you, you, you do probably have to be young to run your best at like say a 5k or relatively young anyway. So like, don't get too far ahead of yourself when you have like a much longer timeline with longer endurance events that are much lower intensity. If you have the the ability to, to kind of leverage some of the shorter stuff earlier in your life. Yeah. There's a, there's an interesting analogy I, I use at the end of my book and it's, it's more for like, um, you know, uh, Western medicine and just the advancement we've had and how we should kind of be cautious of all the advancements in some cases. Um, uh, and you made me think of that when you were talking there, it's almost like, um, you know, the, all the scientists, all the great scientists from history, you know, that we know, you know, they, um, they made these discoveries and they did through, they did that through a lot of, um, uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of training and everything. And, and when they finally made that discovery at the end of all that hard work, they had attained humility through all the hard work, you know? And so that's something that like, it sounds like you, you attained because you did all these other things that built up to who you are and what you've done now, you know, and in that experience gave you the humility to, to maybe uh, do what you're doing now in a smart way. Whereas if someone goes right out the gate with no real experience or anything like that, they kind of stand on the shoulders of giants and they start your training program that you did, that you developed over all this time. And they start doing that right out the gate. 
that that's you know they don't have the humility and the maybe the wisdom that was was learned from someone like you over many many years right mm -hmm. um and so it's the same kind of thing i think with with uh with western medicine and, and medical uh science in general is that um you, you know we're not really thinking about um if we should do things um uh, or you were thinking about if if we can do them right you know so and you can take all this information from all these great scientists from from the past and just you don't have to you didn't have to go through the process of learning that information you just they figured it out for you and told you how to do it mm -hmm. so then you take that and you take the next step without having ever had that humility and that um uh, that process that taught you uh that um like they had you know yeah no that's that's really good way to describe it i think like <laughs> if i'm being honest like i I think like in my early days, it was probably more to do student, like not knowing what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't know I was, I wasn't smart enough as to get myself into enough trouble. So like the, it had, I also didn't have access to the information folks do and ultra marathons were also such a smaller piece to the endurance pie back then. I mean, they still are relatively small compared to your Olympic distance things, but, um, but yeah, it's just the sports grown so much in the last decade too. And like we said before, kids have access to all sorts of information. So if they want to find out about running hundred milers, that's a click away. Whereas I don't think I even knew what an ultra marathon was probably until like my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. So it's, <laughs> you know, by then it's like, you know, I, I, I didn't really, I wasn't even aware probably like of what like top level Olympic athletes were training, like in my high school years. So some of it, it was just like, I think learning gradually enough that I didn't have access to the information to make the big mistakes, thankfully, because I probably would have made them. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, but even then I, it's kind of like, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, mm -hmm. maybe we're supposed to have direct experience ourselves and not have read it in a book first. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously it's useful to have you know, some like warnings, I guess, like don't eat that mushroom or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, when we're foraging in the woods, like it's, it's good to have that kind of stuff. Um, but it, maybe it's, it's, it's supposed to be where you learn things on your own and it's not all, you know, printed out for you and you just go and do it. You know, you're supposed to kind of go through the ups and downs on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting path to take. And I think like some of it is, is also like, if you find yourself in a position where, you're like the top cross country runner in a competitive state at the high school level, there's going to be enough eyes on you and enough interest in your future development that you may get steered into a more aggressive approach a little earlier. Whereas like, you know, for me, I had some success, but not enough to like draw the attention of the Olympic development teams and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, you know, it's everyone's life experience, I think makes their path to whatever they do really interesting. And it's, uh, you know, it's always fun to kind of think about that and kind of why things happen the way they did and how it ended up shaping who you are. So it's an interesting topic for sure. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to chat with you about too, is just like the general, like I, perhaps it's just like the function of the heart, because I know like when I think of a heart, when most people think of heart, they probably think of it as this, this muscle that is essentially pumping or circulating our blood throughout our body. And that's what its role is. It's just like keep that flowing and the harder it works, the harder it's pumping and the more nutrients or resources it's delivering. Um, but you referenced some, you referenced a book and a thought that is maybe a little less conventional as to what the actual role of a heart is. Yeah. Um, this is also like one of my favorite things that I've kind of found. And 
um, in, in my, in my, uh, research. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a large body of information that, that suggests that the heart is not a pressure propulsion pump, uh, and that it's impossible. It would be impossible to expect a heart of our size to, um, pump the blood throughout the entire body, uh, effectively. Um, and so, you know, throughout centuries and even the guy who, uh, who first described the flow of blood throughout the cardiovascular system, his name was William Harvey. Um, he wrote a, a book called Dumontu Cordis and, uh, even he wrote to a colleague and said he didn't believe that the heart was what was pumping the blood. Um, and so that begs the question that if that's true, um, and there's a, there's a book by a, um, a cardiologist or not a cardiologist, a medical doctor, um, named, uh, Branko first called the heart and circulation, which is probably the most, the most research on this topic that, uh, I've, I've found it reads like a 200 page research paper. So if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> go for it. But, um, but yeah, I, I talk about it in my book too. And so that begs the question of, you know, if that's true, if this heart's not a pressure propulsion pump, what, why is it there? And how does the blood move around the body? Um, and, you know, in, in medical training, um, we're told that, you know, there's one way valves in the veins and that keeps the blood flowing one direction. And it can't go back the other way. And there's definitely contraction of muscle um, that helps move the blood a little bit. Um, but then we're told that the heart does the rest of it. And when you look at the, the, um, the physics of it, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't, it looks, it's kind of impossible, um, to, for the heart to be doing that. Um, especially when it gets to the point of like the capillaries where the blood really slows down and it gets an exchange with nutrients in the tissues. And so, um, I came across, um, uh, Gerald Pollack and the fourth phase of water and the work that he's doing in, in the lab at university of Washington. Um, and he, in their lab there, he has a graduate student that has now shown that, um, water, um, can hold energy. And when it's sufficiently, when it holds sufficient energy and it gets next to a, a water loving surface that it structures itself in a way that creates an energy gradient within the arteries, um, cause the arteries are a hydrophilic surface, um, that promotes blood flow. And so there's, there was experiments done in like the forties and then and they repeated them in the sixties where um, after they uh, stopped the heart of a dog, the blood continued to flow for up to two hours after mm. the heart stopped. And, um, and so more recently in, in Gerald Pollock's lab, they've, they've, uh, they've proven that this happens in arteries uh, and that the fourth phase water does form on the arteries um, and that it promotes blood flow. At least they've proven it in chick embryos in the arteries and in, in them. Um, and so it's pretty fascinating. Um, and, and so this uh, to me is, um, a major way, if not the main way that the blood moves throughout the body. And so again, the question is, well, then why do we have a pumping heart? And, and why do we have, um, why is it where it is? And so the answer I think is that there are, there are a number of ways that water can attain energy. Um, and one of them is infrared light, um, which we get from the sun. Um, one of them is from the earth, which we can do by like having contact with the earth, grounding, that kind of stuff. Um, and then also contact with other humans, the right electromagnetic fields, which humans have ele compatible electromagnetic fields. Um, but then there's also, if you, um, you know, vortex water, which is like spiral it, swirl it, you know, in the presence of oxygen, uh, that it also energizes the water. Uh, and this all sounds like super woo woo and stuff, but check out Dr. Pollock's book, uh, the fourth phase of water. And it's, it's really a good explanation. Um, but yeah, so one of the ways that we can energize water is the vortex. And if you look at the orientation of the heart, 
the muscles are oriented in a spiral nature. And when it contracts, it vortexes, it swirls things like this. Hmm. So when the ventricle muscles contract, um, they are, they're, they're spiraling the blood. And there's a number of places that where we get some vortexing, like when the blood flows through the valves and it spirals on either side as it goes through, kind of like when water flows past a rock in a river and we, we see it spiral on the end, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, and then there's always oxygen present because the blood has oxygen, even the, the venous blood has oxygen. And so, um, when the heart is contracting like this, it's vortexing the blood, um, trying to energize it so that when it does get into the arteries, it's energized enough to form this fourth phase water that creates this energy flow or this blood flow mechanism. So in a way, you know, um, and this has, you know, been, been proven to be what's going on. Um, uh, in a way, the heart is responsible for the movement of blood, just not necessarily in the way that we thought. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, the other, the, the other purpose, I think, of the heart and the other role of the heart in the body, which I think is really fascinating, especially in the context of endurance athletes, is that um, it's there to maintain the pressure in the system because the, the blood flow is largely driven by demand in the tissues. So if the tissues need more oxygen, need more nutrients, then the blood flows faster and the fourth phase water um, creates that blood flow faster. Um, and so we, if we went for a run or did some sort of exercise, um, the tissues would demand more nutrients and oxygen. And so the, the, all the blood would go to the arterial side. And if the heart wasn't there to kind of stop it a little bit, then all the blood would go to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse and the pressure in the system would not be able to be maintained. And so the heart, um, is thought of as this organ that propels the blood and forcefully pumps the blood. Um, but in reality, it's placed into the middle of this are the arteries and veins in the middle of blood that's already flowing. And it's actually more of a, um, uh, a stopping up organ, it slows the flow of blood to vortex it a little bit. So it's more like a hydraulic ram, hmm. which is, I didn't know what that was. When I first read it, I had to go look it up. And, and, you know, I, I describe it in the book and everything. But, um, and there's actually very interesting studies done on endurance athletes that show that, you know, like, because it's, um, it's observed in endurance athletes that the, the heart muscle can get bulkier, um, get stronger because they thought that it, it was because um, it's happened to forcefully plump blood more often. But in reality, um, the muscle is stronger because as the blood is forcefully flowing into the heart on its own, it's really effective at stopping it mm. um, so that the pressure can be maintained in the system. Um, because again, if it, if it wasn't, then the venous side would collapse and that's not a good thing. Um, and so, it's it's really fascinating stuff and 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 a lot of the studies describe the blood flow through the heart as as cardiac um throughput not cardiac output it's not that the, the heart is forcefully pumping the blood it's that it's how much is moving through the heart and how much is getting you know vortexed on on the way through it so really interesting things and i think that when you look at it in that um, aspect it also gives us insight into things like you know what causes heart failure if it's not this the blood's not responsible or the heart's not responsible for pumping the blood then you know how can the heart fail at pumping when it's not meant to do that in the first place and it it gives us a lot of perspective um on that and so i go into a lot of those things in the book and what that means for heart failure and what that means for um, different you know therapies we could use mm -hmm. this episode of hpo is made possible through our friends at bioptimizers and their new product cognibiotics Negative feelings and mood can be impacted by the health of your gut. 
So serotonin has been linked to happiness, much of which is created in your gut. If your gut health is off, it can lead to negative outcomes such as loss of happiness and positivity. Bioptimizers has aimed at tackling this with their product Cognibiotics, which they call their breakthrough mood enhancer. This formula starts with a solid foundation of prebiotics and probiotics to support gut health and positive feelings in a safe and natural way. Cognibiotics also includes 17 herbs that are linked to enhanced mood, stress management, and improved memory. One of my personal favorite aspects of trying any of Bioptimizer's products is their full one-year money-back guarantee. So you don't have to take their word for it. Just try it out. See for yourself risk-free. Head over to www.cognibiotics.com forward slash human. That's www.cognibiotics.com forward slash H-U-M-A-N. And throw in promo code HUMAN10, that's capital H-U-M-A-N-1-0 for 10% off your next order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of an interesting thought process. And I guess my, my question around that, to your knowledge, is this like a scenario of we kind of have a relatively new theory or a bit of a change in direction, but it's new enough that we just haven't had enough evidence or enough research kind of put in place to kind of prove it yet. So we're just kind of cautiously proceeding as we have historically until we gather that amount of research and information to say, okay, now that we've actually done more work here, we realize this is what's going on here. Are we just kind of in the early stages of that perhaps, or? I think that, I think that when you look at like Dr. First book and he's got a ton of research and, and you know, if you, Lots of times you'll you'll look at the, some of the studies that were done, and if you look at the if you're looking at the heart as a pressure propulsion pump, you're like that study doesn't make sense. Why did that happen? You know, in mm-hmm. that study. Um, and, but then you look at it as a hydraulic ram, and what I just described, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. You know, so in that context, I think we're further along than we think. But I don't know. I mean, this is not a a well accepted theory among cardiologists. Most of them don't know this, but. Um, or, or wouldn't uh, wouldn't know much about it if you asked them, you know. But there's a really interesting YouTube video called "The Helico Heart." I mean, it's just like a kind of made-for-TV, like 30-minute documentary thing um, called "The Helico Heart" that describes a lot of what I was talking about um, as far as the heart being a vortex. Um, and it's you know it's mainstream you know cardiologists at major universities talking about it. So it is in the academic world seems to be more well known. The clinical world doesn't seem to be. Uh, well known at all, um, and I think that um, it, it's not a it's, it's not a popular research topic. So not as much research is being done on it um, as much as it could be. But I think the thing that really drives it home for me is that it makes me think that this is in fact what's going on um, and how the heart functions is the research done in heart failure patients in infrared sauna. So infrared sauna or infrared light is one of the most absorbable forms of energy by the water. And so you look at these people who have, you know, heart failure, their, their heart is, you know, thought to be failing at pumping, you know, but if, if the heart's not really responsible for moving the blood, I mean, it does a little pumping, but it's not really responsible for moving the blood throughout the entire body. But then we apply the infrared to the body and that energizes the water, forms the fourth phase water on the arteries and creates blood flow. Now we're taking pressure off the heart. And, and mm. the studies in people with heart failure and infrared sauna are phenomenal. Like they're getting 
Um, you know, their heart size, which has expanded because of heart failure, has decreased significantly. Their ejection fraction goes way up. Their blood flow goes way up. Um, it's just pretty phenomenal. It makes me wonder why there's not, you know, uh, an infrared sauna in every, like, you know, heart failure clinic everywhere, yeah. you know. But, uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of different pieces that kind of, um, you know, uh, confirm it for me. But I, I, can, I can definitely see how when, you, when someone first hears that, they're just like, no way. Like, if that was the case, then the leading researchers in the country would all be talking about it, you know. Um, but sometimes a, a theory is just not a popular one, so it doesn't get as investigated as it should. Um, but I think it definitely warrants further investigation. Yeah, and eventually, like a, a PhD student or something has to like decide to make their dissertation on it or something like that in order to really drive it home. But uh, the a couple things to reference about what you said when with the infrared saunas, are you doing the same? Is that is that similar to just having like a, a red light therapy? Or are those kind of two different ways to do that, or are they they different altogether? I I actually don't know if red light has infrared in it. Cause I know like the infrared saunas, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not on the visible spectrum, um, infrared light. So you're not really seeing the light. You're feeling some heat from the mm -hmm. panels, but you're not really seeing the light. So, um, I know that the red light therapy, um, is great for like mitochondria and, and, um, that kind of stuff. I, I don't know that that is infrared and infrared is just going to be, I'm, I'm sure you're, I'm sure your um, your blood and the water in your blood is getting some energy from that red light, but. I just know that in Dr. Pollock's lab, infrared at the 3000 nanometer wavelength is the most absorbed by water, um, the most readily absorbed. And you're, and it can get energy from other sources too. Like, um, you know, they've shown in the lab that, you know, they have like a tube that's a hydrophilic surface and they put water in there and someone puts their hands around it and the electromagnetic fields from the hand creates more um, fourth phase water. It energizes the water a little bit. So like humans give off this energy. Um, which is why I think human contact is pretty important. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, it's just really interesting to, you know, oftentimes uh, people focus on the biochemistry of the body, but we have a whole physics side to us that is extremely fascinating. Um, and I think that um, there's a lot to, a lot to discover there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one other follow up question with that is correct me if I'm wrong, but is the, the reason why you would put, like someone who just had a stroke or heart attack on blood thinners is essentially to reduce the workload of the heart. So since it's, it's probably compromised after that procedure or whatever they did to kind of save your life is the infrared sauna essentially trying to do the same thing as those blood thinners, just with a different, a different, like uh, a different angle, I guess, where it's going to reduce the workload of the heart um, or the, the work, the demand for the heart's uh, utility same way like a like a blood thinner would reduce that um yeah super astute question um so that's exactly what well the blood thinner is more like you know someone had a heart attack and had a stent placed mm -hmm. um they're trying to reduce the blood thinner is mainly trying to reduce any um danger of a clot forming because that stent is not normal tissue the body you know may form a clot because of that but also they're put on ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and those are yes designed to take workload off the heart um, by, you know, lowering blood pressure, lowering heart rate, that kind of stuff. Because as the heart heals, um, the more pressure that's on it, the more likely they're to develop like, you know, cardiac remodeling where the heart changes shape because the muscle is a bit weaker because it was damaged. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then eventually, you know, end up with, with heart failure. Um, and so there's actually studies, you know, with infrared sauna that have shown in rats at least 
that after a heart attack, infrared sauna use definitely reduces the, the chance of uh, cardiac remodeling because again, it's taking pressure off the heart. The heart, you know, in my opinion, I'm pretty convinced at this point that it's, it's not the main mover of the blood. It's not designed to be forcefully pumping. It does some pumping, but not as much as we think. Mm -hmm. And that more we can get the blood flowing on its own and using those mechanisms, um, the, the, the more we're going to take workload off the heart and allow it to do what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So is it okay? No, that makes, that makes sense. I think that one thing I find interesting is like, it almost mirrors kind of a similar scenario where like, let's say I like broke my arm. I'm going to want to get a cast on that arm uh, so that I don't further damage. I get it set and it heals properly, which just basically means I have to be very, very minimal or, uh, not use it at all for probably six to eight weeks while it's healing and going through that process. But once it's healed, I don't want to leave that cast on my arm for the rest of my life because then I'm just limiting, I'm atrophying muscles. I'm not kind of getting myself back to where I was before. Is that kind of the same general approach with some of these? Like, like if I, if I had a heart attack and they put me on like blood thinners and some of these things in order to do that, would they eventually say like, we want to get you off of those so you can gradually work your heart back up to full capacity, or is it something that's going to be a limiter for the remainder of your life because of that event? Well, I can tell you that, um, a lot of the drugs, uh, there, there are prescribed for life. Um, I can, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not, a, I'm even a medical doctor and I would say I disagree with that. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's important, you know, in the short term to prevent a clot, to prevent cardiac remodeling. Um, so, so some of those would be wise, but I think um, there's like a short term, you know, goal there. And, mm -hmm. and if you meet that short term goal, like, so say in, in three, four months after a heart attack, someone goes in and their, their function has returned like almost to normal, or at least um, as, as well as could be expected. Um, then I think that they should be instructed on how to you know, uh, maintain that strength in the heart again, so that the, the need for those is, is not, um, it's not necessary because there are downsides to those things. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a bit tricky. I mean, obviously people should talk to their physicians if they've had mm -hmm. a heart attack, but you know, um, I tend to have, you know, some opinions about that stuff, um, that, uh, that don't necessarily coincide with, with, um, the opinions of, of like the, the mainstream protocol, you know, but again, um, there's a, there's, there's a, there's not a lot of information on these like alternative type things, you know, um, f for, for these types of therapies, you know, in allopathic medicine, it's, they have these drugs, that's their tool, you know, and everything looks like a hammer when, or everything looks like a nail when you have a hammer, you know, and, and so that's, that's kind of what they do, you know, if they were aware of, you know, the research on the saunas and the research on magnesium and the blood thinner and that kind of stuff, would they change? I don't know because the system kind of keeps them very, um, in that pharmaceutical model. Uh, and so just like, you know, with Dr. Baker, he started to go outside that model and they didn't like it very much. Right? <laughs> uh, so, so, so yeah, I mean, it, and that's just, you know, it's just, we gotta be informed. We gotta do our own research and stuff and then take that to physicians and say, Hey, what about this? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, going in with information and asking questions is never, never a bad idea. It seems like, uh, you know, especially with how much you pay to go into a hospital, you may as well come out there with as much info as you yeah, can get. Exactly. Uh, um, there's one other thing I was going to ask you about that. Uh, um, oh, you know, what is the thing I find really interesting about 
just cardiovascular things is it seems like the, where Western medicine has just thrived is like some of these like acute procedures, like what can, what they can do to save you after an event like that in the moment, we need to get this blockage removed. That stuff is just mind boggling that, that we've gotten as far as we have. And you can essentially get a second lease on life, even if you have an event like that, assuming you get there quick enough and you know, you're in good hands, but uh, it's almost like after that point, we we look at everything through that lens where there's like really one way to go about this versus like okay maybe there's a way that we are most comfortable with given what we know but if we have a unique situation or someone who decides for them personally they want to take an alternative approach where are the resources for them to be able to do that versus them just kind of going out and, and guessing because it's really hard to find someone who's going to give them that information or at least tell them the pros and cons of it. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's tough, you know, because it's, uh, you know, I realize, you know, with me, I have this, this medical background. So I go and I read research and stuff and I, and I have this, this background that allows me to interpret that, um, uh, at a, I guess at a, at a different level, um, than, than most. And so, you know, because I, I could tell people to go to PubMed and they could go in there and they could type in stuff and, and find that research. But, you know, would they know exactly what it's saying? You know, you could read the, the abstract, but would you know what that means? Um, most people, you know, they're smart enough. They probably figured out with enough, with enough uh, research and stuff. But it's very difficult for the average person to, you know, to, to form opinions about these things and to question their doctors. Because, you know, I hear all the time people say, you know, take this information to your doctor. And you may give it to them and they may just say, well, no, this is dumb. And you may not know how to rebut that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you just may not have enough information. And so it's a really tough spot because I, I do think that everyone should be making well-informed decisions on their health. Um, and that includes, you know, it, with your doctor in the doctor's office. But um, it's really hard to, uh, I guess, be informed enough to to question your doctor sometimes and and so um i think it takes again it takes that um that experience where you start to pay attention to your health you don't outsource it to somebody else and over time you're going to learn what is good for you and you're going to keep doing research and you're going to have self-experimentation and that kind of stuff where where you figure out what works best for you and then you take that to your doctor and now you're now you're equipped because you've been doing this for years now um and 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 you're right when you say that um, Western medicine has some pretty modern miracles that are life-saving in the acute state of things. If you have a life-threatening situation, um, Western medicine, like the hospital, is, is where you should be. Um, but when it comes to the uh, chronic management afterward, that's where it falls short. Um, and that's where it's up to us to, to be as educated as we can. And, you know, I, I'm trying to you know, one of my goals is to, to educate people so that they can make the best health decisions that they can. And that's what this book is all about. That's what, um, you know, me being on social media is all about. Otherwise I would not be there. Um, and, uh, and I think that if more people speak up about that stuff and share their experiences, then that's going to be where the education comes from. That's where the be going to be where the confidence comes from where people can have those educated conversations with their doctors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the only other thing I could think about with like the infrared sauna stuff is just like, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario where the research gets to a point where like, we're looking at that as like an, 
an, a, a decent enough alternative that let's say, Hey, we've got a couple options here and this is one of them is the biggest hurdle for that. Just going to be like, I got to imagine it's going to be a lot harder for a doctor to say, Hey, go, just go get yourself an infrared sauna versus here's your, your stack of uh, medication. Just go on this for, for X amount of months or the rest of your life, depending on what it is. Yeah. I think that, I think the biggest barrier to that is, is I think, um, medical incorporated. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the biggest, the biggest barrier because, um, I doubt an insurance company is going to pay for infrared sauna. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I doubt that um, a doctor's going to, you know, get kickbacks, whether, you know, if that's true or not by you know, prescribing sauna, like it's not going to be a very profitable thing for a hospital to have. Um, and at the end of the day, medicine is a business and, um, and these pharmaceutical companies have a large financial interest in, in them uh, prescribing their products. And unless a pharmaceutical company comes up and starts making saunas, then I don't see that happening. And in reality, you don't need a sauna if you're not scared of the sun. You know that that's the original form of infrared light that's mm -hmm. gonna that's gonna do that. And you live in a place you can get adequate sun. Like right now, I use a sauna a lot because it's winter and you don't get out as much. You know, I live in Virginia and it's it's colder. Uh, so so yeah, um, the biggest barrier I think is is the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're making me happy that I decided to move to Phoenix when I did, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, it is interesting. It's like almost like gyms need to have like a pharmaceutical rep that they send in with their stuff to say like, <laughs> Hey, we've got infrared saunas at our place. Send That's your right. clients here for whatever it is per month on their, on their membership. Um, yeah, no, this has been all really interesting stuff. I think it's uh, uh, always fun to talk about just a variety of different topics around variety of different things. And this is certainly an interesting topic and you have a unique perspective with it. So, uh, um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to chat about your book? Um, I mean, in general, I just, I just want to tell people that again, I didn't write the book to, to say cardiologists are wrong or anything like that. I just, I'm trying to understand, um, this disease and this organ and, and I haven't covered a lot about it and I started sharing it on social media and people were interested. So, I decided to write a book and get it all down. And so I hope people take that as, as just as information, you know, I want people to learn and make educated decisions. Um, but you know, I, I'm perfectly comfortable saying like, I don't know if everything I say in the book is, is true, but I, you know, there's like 550 cited articles. And so that, that suggests that a lot of it could be. And so the important thing I think is, is that even if you're, you're someone that totally disagrees with what I wrote, that, the purpose of this is not to, um, to be right or wrong. It's to open up the conversation and, and find the truth. And so that could be somewhere in the middle. And, and I hope that people see it that way. And I hope that people like it. Um, and, and, uh, and I hope that, um, they, they gain something from it, you know, that they get some usefulness out of it. Yeah. And I think like I, with, with any of this stuff, I think oftentimes when people look at like an alternative approach piece of literature or like, you know, something new, like a pioneering or like, let's try to push this narrative into a conversation that will get us a better understanding of this topic as a whole. You know, it, it can, you, you see that you see negativity around that sometimes where it's like, oh, you're going to hurt people because they're going to read this and then they're going to do something wrong and they're going to kill themselves, which is obviously like a pretty drastic way to look at it. But mm -hmm. um, the way I think is like, well, maybe we're not thinking about that all the way through where, 
you know, if we keep doing things as is, we're just going to keep doing things as is, and we're never going to move forward. Whereas, mm. you know, a book like, like yours gets written and it just asks, asks questions and it kind of like, it almost forces the hand of the standard or the status quo to at the very least go through it with a fine tooth comb and say, here's where we disagree and create that paper trail as well. So that people have, you know, that, that a further understanding of it. Whereas like, if you decided I'm not going to write this book and there's still like bits and pieces of the research that you used lying around, people could find that and, and like apply it in a way that's not, not, not the intention to begin with, because there isn't like a, there isn't that, that case being made at any, in any, any spot. So I think it is, you know, personally, I think it is something that can potentially move the conversation forward. And, you know, one would hope it would help us improve outcomes versus, you know, regress them, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, you know, uh, I hope that people buy it and gain from it, you know, and, and they, and they uh, get benefit from it and they can change their life. But ideally I would give it to every cardiac researcher out there because um, not that I, I want to, you know, force my opinion on them, but I just, I want them to read it and say, hmm, I never thought about that. Well, maybe I'll change my next experience, experiment and do it this way instead and see what happens. And you know, just to give them ideas to help, again, progress, you know, our understanding of this organ and what causes this diseases forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like for someone, if you're in your situation too, it's like, you, you know, you have direct experience where you went in looking for some answers or asking some questions. You didn't necessarily get answers to all those questions. So it's like, <laughs> what would be your, what would be the incentive to essentially just, you know, stop asking those questions if you haven't been given the, the answers yet anyhow. So, right. um, very cool. Well, uh, you want to share, where folks can find you and check out your book if they're interested. Yeah. So, uh, my, um, website is resourceyourhealth.com. That's where my blog and there's a link to the book there. Um, and people, I do my health coaching through there as well. My book is on Amazon. I self published So that's kind of my only option. Um, it's in an, uh, ebook and, and paperback. Um, and then my social media is just, uh, DR Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Um, on all, all, all the different platforms so people can find me there as well. Awesome. Well, be sure to link those to the show notes. Um, one thing I just remembered is all the way back from the beginning of the episode, if you're curious, it's episode 149 was when uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey first came on HBO. So if you're interested in kind of checking out what we chatted about on that one, 149 is where you'll find it. Um, otherwise, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. You take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at HPO podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.